0: Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and you, you are very welcome at the Zipret Roundtable on a mild late Thursday afternoon here in London town in the next 60 minutes. Why the United Nations is frontrunner for the 2009 Really Useless Award. Why the government won't allow Iraqi interpreters into the UK. The real reason why Washington has sacked the ISAF general. The real reason why Pakistan is at long last facing up to Taliban. Why joint warrior is into lambing. Why the UK is into colonial wars? And should British MPs with their noses in the trough really be the ones to accuse African politicians of having their hands in the till? And piracy, how is the ransom money handed over? By whom and to whom? Oh, yes, and uh, why do sailors say aye, aye, or hello, sailor? Right, the Ministry of Defence is not getting all essential equipment to frontline troops in Afghanistan, according to the National Audit Office It published that news today. It has published this report saying that 57% of consignments do reach units within the allocated time. Now, well, that means 43% don't. With me in the studio, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson. The NAO has also said that armoured vehicles brought in to replace Land Rovers are deemed too lightly armoured and are no good. That's astonishing, isn't it? Well,
1: the problem is we're playing catch-up all the time. And and what's happened, there's something like 13 different types of vehicles in Afghanistan uh, with the army. Because as the war changes its nature, people are trying to react to it. And the, the war at the moment is against the IED and the mine. So what you need are vehicles which will give you survivability against a mine. And that's a totally different vehicle than the sort of vehicle you need if someone's firing at you with an anti-tank gun, which is what the vehicles were originally designed for in the British Army. And as a result, we've got this hybrid mix of vehicles. All the time you're having to add armour on as the threat gets more and more. Vehicles become heavier, they're not so good across country, they break down, you need spares,
0: etc. Stub axles going,
1: diffs going. So the whole problem is that we're playing catch-up all the time. That's really it in a nutshell.
0: Why does the
1: MOD have this problem? Well, we have a two-type army, and to begin with, we... Uh, equipped it to fight a proper enemy, in quotation marks, who are going to fire at you with guns and shells, and therefore you need a vehicle that has the armour that will stand up to that. What we now need are vehicles that, if you drive over a huge mine, the chap driving it doesn't kill, get killed, nor do the people in the back. And the design of that vehicle is totally different. And this is the problem... And the other problem is that all the time, as the threat gets bigger and bigger, we're, we're running around trying to find the thing that'll defeat it. We find the thing that'll defeat the threat last year, and by the time we get it, it's not defeating the threat we find now.
0: I mean, there's nothing new in this, and that's not a criticism of the MOD. I mean, it's it's something which has gone on for 150 years in warfare.
1: It's absolutely not new, and and the Rhodesians actually learned a huge amount about it, and they're, they're roadie war they had when, when uh, they were uh, fighting as an independent country uh, and they learnt a great deal about this business about driving along mined vehicle uh, roads but unfortunately the, the, the corporate mind of the military and I say that being a military myself has a very short memory.
0: Why? Well I think... It's I mean go to staff college and they say alright let's refight this war and see what went wrong and me- lessons learned I mean, it's, a, it's a catchphrase. Well
1: it, I'm terribly cynical and I always say we don't learn any new lessons we just relearn old
0: ones yeah. Okay. Talking of learning lessons, nothing better way to doing in, in joint exercises. And Joint Warrior, the first of this year's two important joint service planning and redeployment exercises in the UK's military calendar, uh, has, has started. Um, other NATO countries and allies are also taking part, so what happens and how should we rate it? Julian, what happens on this sort of exercise? It's a role for all three services, isn't it? Yes, and, and
1: that's very important because getting the three services to work together is important so that you don't get into the syndrome of I'm not c- concerned about you, mate, You know, I'm going to get on with my own yeah. bit. It's very important. And it's also important that the staffs work together and get used to working with their opposite numbers wearing different coloured uniforms.
0: Mm-hmm. Also with me at this week's Sit-Rip round table, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor John Dickey, and from City University here in London, and Dr. Rosemary Hollis. Um, Rosemary, this idea of uh, people sort of crashing around—well, not crashing around, but in, in sort of off Scotland and Wales, etc., with all their forces—it's um, something cold warish about it, isn't there? It's the sort of exercises we used to do far more.
2: I'm very puzzled as to why the the British Army hasn't more quickly uh, revived some of the skills that I thought they had very firmly in place and were boasting about. I, I You're talking about what they're training for. Uh, look, I, I remember being in the Persian Gulf, in Bahrain, in Saudi Arabia, talking to British forces, preparing for the war to retrieve Kuwait from Iraq in 1991. So 19, 19, lead up ni- November 90, I, w- I was there. I remember talking to members of the forces who were saying, please tell us it's about oil. Uh, we understood the old enemy, the Soviets. We understood what we were training for and what we might die for in Central Europe. But we're having a great deal of difficulty motivating ourselves to save Kuwaitis, mm-hmm. Saudis... Bahrainis, and so on, from one of their neighbours. Tell us what the national interest is here. And I don't think that problem has ever been fully solved since 91. What are we fighting for? And therefore, what is the end game? What is the goal?
0: John Dickey, the whole sort of argument, I mean, the the deeper political arguments about, for example, the the conflicts, two conflicts in Iraq. Um, First one was all right get Saddam out of um, out of Kuwait, but also Afghanistan. It almost seems as if the government's never quite sure what they're doing, and they make it up as
3: they go along. It is difficult for British governments to present a coherent argument uh, that will convince people at home that the lives that our soldiers are putting at risk are, are there for a very distinct purpose, a very definite one. The, the idea of a, a threat from some remote place like Kabul or, or from Islamabad in Pakistan, is very difficult to convey to a British audience. And it's a, it's a perpetual problem for governments to, to motivate um, the general public to be fully behind. They are fully behind the soldiers, but fully behind the purpose of committing, not just soldiers, but vast amounts of money uh, in the campaign to uh, restore some form of order to uh, Afghanistan and, and uh, to Pakistan.
0: Um, Julian, we've also got... Uh, I think, going on in the Czech Republic at the moment. Um, What some people might say is a more realistic and important exercise, and that is um, the army's on the ground, the air force, according to the army, when they turn up, are in the air, and it is all about close air support. Now, that is the sort of thing that you can transpose into almost any military scenario in, let's say, Afghanistan. That seems to have greater value and needs less planning.
1: Yes, uh, the the whole business of air support takes practising has to be honed all the time and you have to have the people who are able to put it into effect. Because if you lose the skill, you then find that your air support doesn't arrive when you want it. And when it does arrive, it hits the wrong thing, probably you, uh, mm. by mistake. And so it's not something you can just do as a sort of mm-hmm. casual participant. It's something you do need to practice. And particularly if we're working with other people's air forces too, who speak mm. different languages, may have different procedures and so on.
0: I tell you, there's one aspect of it. I mean, you know, having done exercise planning. Um, and that is there are air attacks around the region of Cape Roth. And um, I remember an old relative of mine saying, because they've been doing these for years, haven't they? Weren't, they, weren't JMCs, weren't they, before that? Yes, it's,
1: cause it's, a, it's a, a live bombing range. A live, yeah. yeah.
0: And, I mean, he was saying that uh, it, uh, it's the lambing season, you know, <laughs> and uh, we'll have these people. <laughs> and, and they used to get into great discussions with him. Uh, he was around Doness. And the Dernass Council used to have great discussions with the the services about what compensation there might be um, for when a lamb aborts when uh, in those days an, uh, you know, an RF4 or something like that came screaming over the top. But it's still going on, isn't it? Why are you having an exercise during the lambing season?
1: It's still going on. I just find a great sense of deja vu because I can just remember this happening in all sorts of places like Dartmoor too where, well, you know, firing artillery was banned during the landing season because the U's might abort. Yeah, Since that's,
0: deployments
2: in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, do the British still train in Belize?
0: Yes. yes. I mean, what you yeah. could actually look at is, in fact, the Royal Marines have just been training in Saudi Arabia, haven't yes. they? Yeah. But the training in Belize for what? Jungle warfare.
1: Well, training please, for jungle warfare mm-hmm. because it's a sort of British thing. You better train for everything, like training in Norway in case you have to go and fight in the, in, in the uh, in the snow, and and training in Saudi Arabia because you are actually fighting in the deserts right now. So, the British army's always had a. Policy of trying to train people in the theatres mm. that they might fight in, having learnt bitter lessons. Or it's the, in the only past. place you
0: can actually train. I mean, for example, I at mean, one time you you had to you did a lot of training in Canada, but you weren't going to fight in Canada. But the terrain might be simple. The TA going to Cyprus, for example, would do their gunnery training. Well,
1: what you can't was the practice well.
2: for Iraq and Afghanistan?
1: Well, the the practice for Iraq and Afghanistan is. Uh, Certainly, in in the first Iraq War, because they were actually able to practice in in Saudi Arabia, in, uh, in, in Saudi no, Arabia, Bas- um, and and you know in the desert conditions, and they rehearsed there. Um, and we've been back time. We go to Oman, for example. No, I few- meant
2: downtown Basra. What was the preparation for that? Oh,
1: well, they have they have a tin city, in the same way as we used to have a tin city for for, for Belfast. There's a tin city in I think the same tin city site that we used to have There's in Belfast a new one. For, for Basra. There's
0: a new one opened yeah. up uh, for Afghanistan for yeah. for Kabul in uh, on in Stamford, on the Stamford exercise yeah. the government's just spent fourteen million Okay, tactical operations. Proper 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 street, street in urban in,
2: in urban settings, fine. Um, but then at the regional level and training up the local forces um, and then at the national level, when are you finished? When are they ready? When, when is the job done? I mean, is all of that being thought through on the hoof?
0: A lot of it, don't ask me, but a lot of it's been thought through, not so much on the hoof, but one of the biggest problems, as, as John will tell us, is that there are so many countries involved, so many people have their own ideas what to do, that it's very difficult for one guy to be in charge. And that's why, for example... Uh, People wanted to put in Paddy Ashdown, wasn't it, John, to be Mm. the coordinator in in Afghanistan, to pull all these different organizations
3: together. That is the difficulty of the NATO operation there, because they they work to different guidelines, they work to different training programs, and they work to different terms of engagement. And it's very difficult. The Germans can go so far, the uh, Italians go a little bit further, but... uh, this is the problem, coherence uh, in uh, assembling a force with the NATO having so many different guidelines. Tell me, John, when you, I mean, when you talk in the foreign office about this, I mean, training in other
0: states, I mean, if we take Cyprus, Belize, mm-hmm. um, the Czech Republic at the moment, uh, Canada, mm-hmm. um, probably a lot of other places, the Navy's going off to exercise with the Bangladeshi Navy. Tell me about the diplomatic problems here, because...
3: Everything has significance, doesn't it? We have to be very careful and clear so many different things with the the host government. But on the whole, there is, with certain of the smaller nations, of the Commonwealth, a certain amount of prestige in having uh, association with a major power, such as Britain, with a great deal of expertise, and a lot of that brushes off onto the local force, and therefore they can boast that you know, they were trained alongside the Brits. What happens,
0: though, John, if um, you've, you've got something like I don't know, the, the Russian um, defence plan, which is lead us up to 2020, which was just published yesterday. And they've said the new threat is the fight or the potential fight over oil, oil. energy security, in other words. How the heck
3: do you get a coordinated planning for that? This is particularly difficult because of the very special interest the Russians have in oil and oil prices, and therefore any uh, change in the... Uh, availability of oil in, in large quantities is going to affect them seriously. So one has to be very conscious of the political commercial interests of countries like Russia in, in tackling this problem. If you're sitting in the Middle East, Rosie, you think, what the hell's
0: well, going there, what, on here? What's,
2: what's just that's reminded me of was at, after the, the Gulf War of 91, uh, I was in... Paderborn, I do meet Paderborn, don't I? And I was talking to some of the British forces who had not got Hmm. to fight. I think we're a bit peeved about it. But um, Hmm. I was put this horribly difficult question of, well, if it's their oil we want, why don't we just take it?
0: Which is what we did in the first place. Yes, yes. Well, the trouble is they'll blow it up before you get it. Which is exactly what uh, happened. This is the problem. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, we tried that, didn't we, in Iran. In yeah. Iran in, but we in, to... I can remember it in the 19th, late 1940s with, yeah. with the business of the oil fields. But there.
0: we ought to take this quite seriously uh, the, um, the Russian statement that it's natural resources that could be lead to the next war. It also is coincidental, isn't it, John, because um, I think it's today that it's the final day for submission of territorial, extraterritorial
3: claims on natural resources at the United Nations. And it affects, of course, the great struggle in the Arctic for the great mineral resources that are there and the great rivalries between the Canadians, the Americans, the Russians, and ourselves. And until one gets better... Uh, guidelines set up and some agreement, there's going to be a terrible rush. We've only been waiting since
0: 1946. We'll probably get them. We'll probably get them. I want to talk about something else, and that's piracy. Um, Somali pirates have released a British-owned cargo ship, and that's the uh, Malaspina Castle. After more than a month, they've had it, and it's following the payment of an undisclosed uh, ransom. The 32,000-tonne vessel which has a 24-man crew of, though it's British-owned, Bulgarians, mm-hmm. Russians, Ukrainians and Filipinos, was seized on the 6th of April in the Gulf of Aden. So, where have we got to with this long-running story of piracy? Here's Jamie Gordon.
4: I'm not the hero, the military is the hero thank them.
5: Richard Phillips, the captain of the Maersk, Alabama, thanking US forces who helped rescue him from Somali pirates last month his high profile release served again to highlight the problem of piracy around the Horn of Africa navies from NATO, the EU, Russia Japan, China, India Yemen, the US, Malaysia and Singapore are patrolling the Indian Ocean and the Gulf of Aden to deter pirates but the number of attacks has continued to rise, more than 24 More vessels have been hijacked this year alone, and last year the pirates were estimated to have made something like $50 million in ransom money. The well-armed pirates tend to use fast, lightweight skiffs to launch their raids. Typically the boat just has extra fuel, grappling hooks and ladders on board. Warships like HMS Northumberland patrol the Indian Ocean to the east of Somalia searching for likely vessels, and the Royal Marines' ribs are sent out to investigate. the raiding party was led by Captain Andy Morris. It's got 35 people on board and they're travelling from Somalia to Yemen. They're saying that Somalia is bad, they're hungry in Somalia and so they want to move to Yemen. Um, There's families in there... Uh, three children, six women and the rest men. So no pirates this time but back on board HMS Northumberland news comes through of the Greek-owned MV Saldana and her 22-man crew. Control of the vessel is seized by
3: the um, pirates and they request they request you to stay uh,
5: stay away. Commander Martin Simpson says on this occasion the Royal Navy is unable to help the hijacked ship.
3: So whilst it would be advantageous to be able to take back a vessel that's been pirated. I need to have those resources at the moment, um, but also the danger to the civilian crew at the moment is, 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 is far greater than the uh, and the risk we wish to take.
5: Last weekend the 24 strong crew of the British owned cargo ship Malaspina Castle were released unharmed after an undisclosed sum had been handed over. The policy of paying ransoms has prompted criticism from Abdul Karis Osman Issa, the public works minister in the semi autonomous Puntland region of Somalia he said investment should be directed at beefing up mainland security he also said that pirates were better financed and armed than the regional government. In the in the middle of April, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton announced a four-point plan to tackle the problem of piracy and speaking on this program at the time of Clinton's announcement, Dr. Peter Lair, lecturer in terrorism studies at the University of St. Andrews, said a more joined-up approach was needed.
1: The global response would be actually a UN action, not uh, on the U.S. flag or on the European Union flag but under UN command, under unified command, with one set of uh, rules of engagement. And that's something that you see really lacking at the moment, with with several naval squadrons milling around, everyone with its own chain of command, everybody with its own rules of engagement, which uh, contributes more to the problem than to the solution, I'd say.
0: That report there was by Jamie Gordon. Now, still with me? Royal Major General Julian Thompson the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor John Dickey and from City University here in London Dr. Rosemary Hollis Julian, simple question why can't we stop it?
1: Well we could stop it actually if we reverted to sort of early 19th century practice and went in there and just um, sorted it sorted it out
0: I mean I'm, I'm
1: not being flippant here that's no. actually what you do to pirates and that's what we did in the past how we dealt with it Um, Okay, maybe the the world hasn't got the stomach for that, which means the world has got to put up with piracy for a bit longer, I suspect, until some economic um, problem comes from this, like people start running out of food, start running out of oil. In that case, people will then start screaming for a tougher line, I suspect. Well,
2: I, I do get your point, but in those days, empire was considered a good thing. Today, we're all supposed to be interdependent and uh, in a globalized, shared world, and you can't go in and topple a regime without it's promising. It's not toppling
0: a regime, is it? It's toppling no, but, the but, what, but
2: the gunboat diplomacy that was developed in the Indian Ocean, when the... the Indian Navy, or the British Indian Navy, was plagued by pirates. The the trick was to send in the gunboats, and you fired at the castles on the mainland, or on the on land of the local chieftains for whom the quote-unquote pirates were working. Some of the little Gulf states, we're talking about what is now the United Arab Emirates, was turned into the trucial states because they signed a maritime peace in perpetuity with the British and gave up piracy in return for what was sold as British protection, with the British ending up running their foreign policies. But these days... Our friends in the Gulf don't like to consider that they ever had pirates and they won't use the word. It's only in the British history that we consider that what, what the Indian Navy faced was pirates. But there was interaction, there was forced um, submission uh, on the mainland sheikhs. You didn't just deal with the pirates at sea.
0: But pirates, John Dickey, pirates is a quite an emotive term. I mean, it's seven letters, which fits very neatly across a tabloid in 48 grop Bodoni mm. badold or whatever it's called. and so that, But that inspires people like Hillary Clinton, as we heard in J.B. Uh, Gordon's report, to come up with a four-point plan about pirates, not about diplomacy, not about going into Puntland, the
3: semi-autonomous region where most of these pirates seem to live. Indeed, but it's not a problem you can solve on the sea. The area is enormous, a million square miles. It does cannot, even with a large number of navies there cope with all the little ships that uh, take advantage of, of coming close to, to travelling vehicles, vessels. But I think um, Julian has perhaps put his finger on the answer that if you move into the area of disaffection uh, and clear up that, then you're halfway to solving the problem. Did you hear
0: um, in Jamie's report, he was talking about Abdul Karis Osman Issa, um one of Puntman's ministers, saying that one of the problems is paying ransoms or whatever. And I'm not quite clear how the ransom is paid to the pirates, but one man who is clear is one of the leading lawyers who specialises in dealing um, with this sort of problem, Stephen Askins. He's on the line now from his London law firm, Ince & Company. Is ransom paying is not illegal, is it? No,
6: it's not. Good afternoon. Good afternoon afternoon to you. Um, No, it's not. I mean, uh, the the way the law is set up is it's not meant to punish victims of extortion. So so paying a ransom in itself, certainly as a matter of English law, is not illegal. Um, And um, of course, you know, we involved in all this recognize the moral argument of paying a ransom and, and that you could debate that all afternoon but the, the reality is that the commercial world and of course it operates on two levels the international world which you've been talking about and the commercial world the, 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 the sort of um cold face where we have to deal with the reality of getting these crews and ships released the paying of the ransom is really the only way of freeing the ships
0: and the pilots know they'll always get paid
6: well, it's interesting because you were talking about talking about the word pirates, of course, they regard themselves as businessmen um, and they talk in terms of selling the ships back to um, back to the owners um, and <clears throat> don't see themselves as pirates. But you're right. They have a very good business model um, which allows them to take ships. Uh, and there is a dynamic which is generally understood, which is that of course, once they get on board, uh, the military forces are reluctant and will not really take action against them, although there have been notable exceptions uh, and we understand and again it 's not taken for granted that the crew will not be harmed and as long as that dynamic is maintained, uh, then you 're right, then you 're right in the sense that um, uh, the, the ransoms will continue to be paid.
0: How many groups of pirates, because presumably they're not acting individually, how many groups do you have to deal with?
6: Well, there are, a number of, there are two main clans, without going into the, the vastly complex tribal system of Somalia, one um, based up to the north called the Mushateen, uh, and a more um, robust uh, set of, uh, of, of um, individuals called the Hawir, based down south. And I think it is interesting because um, there is no doubt a sort of um, loose alliance between the two, which in effect is keeping out the more islamic fundamentalist tribes that people talk about the al-shabab and that does give people problems with dealing with this on the ground but we are dealing really with two main subclans um up in the uh Pundlen region of somalia
0: now how do you actually pay them i mean presumably they don't take visa
6: no, they don't take visa no you're mm. right um i mean uh, it, the way of payment has been well publicized i think is it's uh, it's done by a number of ways Uh, The most recent and the most popular has become uh, by dropping the money literally in by parachute uh, from a small plane which uh, overflies the the hijacked vessel. Um, What they tend to do then is is a proof of life, fly pass to make sure the crew are all there uh, and and are all right. Uh, And then the money is literally um, jettisoned out of the back of the aircraft uh, into the sea where it's picked up uh, by the pirates. Um, Quite often we include in there a sort of money counting machine to speed things up, because they literally then count and divide the money. Uh, and then they they, they have the, the difficult task, or the difficult task for them, which is getting themselves off the ship, because they are worried that at that particular point they are vulnerable to arrest, or or as we've seen with the French, the uh, an attack after they've got ashore. So... It's basically by parachute or or by sea, but it's 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 in cash, pretty much. It's it's pretty
0: scary, isn't it? I mean, if you're coming up with I don't know, let's say a million dollars, I mean, a million dollars seems to me very very vulnerable in a small boat, especially if you've got a uh, wind blows up or or you miss the target or whatever.
6: Well, I d- no, I mean, <clears throat> you're right. It is it is a large sum of money, but it it, it in terms of rucksack size, you know, you can get. A million, two million dollars, or whatever you're talking about, into into a sort of 35 kilo package. So it's not very big, um, and um, the packages float quite happily, uh, and that is working. and And it's not even if you're taking it by boat, you take it to a bigger boat before transferring it to a smaller boat. So I mean, it's um, it's a system that works, um, and obviously steps are taken to protect those people delivering the money. But uh, I mean, it, it, it does work. So. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, the industry has had a lot of practice in it.
0: Just a final point, um, Stephen. Do you get on first name terms with these people?
6: <laughs> well, I mean, um, uh, there's a, What happens is, is that um, the owner will set up a, a, a team. Um, the Somalians use um, nicknames, um, and uh, Somalians all use nicknames, as far as I can see. Um, and and a dialogue, obviously. Um, is set up. Normally, the pirates will use an intermediary who speaks better English. Um, and yes, I mean, the, the, the discussions are, are generally, generally fairly cordial. And as I say, they're, they're seen as a business negotiation. There are moments of high tension, either created by activity by military forces outside the ship or from things that are happening inside the ship as frustration and tension mounts. But, but generally, it's just a very difficult, tedious and frustrating process.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen Haskins. Um, John Dickey, from what I can hear from that, I mean, it's absolutely intriguing, the idea you go along with the puss's grip with half a million dollars in it and you say, here you are, Mickey Mouse or whatever your pseudonym is. This is not going to stop this business. It's too good a business. Indeed, and yet... We've been if, doing it for
3: 600 years. If you we? look back to the kidnapping... Uh, Period when people like Teddy Weyth uh, were taken, uh, it was a firm line taken by the Thatcher government that no money would ever be paid, and they'd have had to sit it out. Shipowners won't do that, and I also it's an international under uh, too much. But again, you can't insure against this uh, sort of uh, predicament, so that uh, you're continually being bled with. Uh,
2: being dropped into the sea. It's, but it's also who the players are, isn't it? Because I was just thinking of all the smuggling that goes on and uh, the, the the boats that head out, I gather, um, from Iran to the Musandam Peninsula of um, at, the, at the tip of Oman mm-hmm. and back again. And I understand that the local forces go out to catch them every night and they never expect to catch all of them. And there's a kind of game going on that uh, you, you take your chances mm. and your odds are that you'll get through, I don't know, eight times out of ten mm. and then you'll pay a fine and be sent back home the, the couple of times you get caught. I
1: seem to remember... It's interesting because these pirates obviously learnt their morality from the lawyers. Um, yeah. because. This guy's making money, huge amounts of money, dealing with yeah, pirates. Yeah. Okay, well, I feel like hiring myself a large craft and setting up a piracy mm-hmm. firm off the coast of England because it's obviously, you know, such a, de- a yeah, very but easy see, as John thing to says,
0: do. coast of England, nobody would pay. I mean, but, if you, you know, if but I mean, so, and the yes. other
1: thing that's actually interesting, of course, I, mean, I must clear my hand here because I'm involved with a company that's going to, that's trying to sort out this piracy business in a different way from the law I did. Um, but... There's you, more the piracy going or, yeah. on going on round the world than happens here, and the piracy here is is quite gentle stuff. So where's piracy bad in stuff? off Nigeria, um, mm-hmm. they are killing the crews of tankers, and then selling the oil. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, uh, if you encourage or allow piracy, and reckon if the international community allows it to happen, then the international community are like sheep, and they will be shorn. Because they've allowed it to happen. I mean, I feel very strongly about this. It's a morality, it's a moral problem, and it's no good whinging about power, so if you're not prepared to do something robust about it.
0: Right. Uh, we're about to do something about the programme because we're halfway through it. Um, you're listening to SITREP. Don't forget, you can download SITREP. as a podcast or listen again uh, whenever you like, simply by going to bf, bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Dot .com. Well, still to come, who's going to win the Iranian election, and why does it matter, and why British MPs are in no position to accuse African leaders of having their hands in the till. But before that, I'm afraid it's quiz time, and quiz means prizes. Quiz means, come on, come on, come on, what does quiz mean? Surprises. Surprises. Thank you, John. Last week, we wanted to know why sailors say I. I. Well, the Saxons use I. didn't spell it that way, spelled it E-I, to signify it is understood. I I does not really mean yes. It means I hear, understand the command, and will obey. So the answer, probably from Saxon English. Um, just as an aside, in response to an officer in, say, a 17th, 18th century uh, boat, a ship would hail an approaching boat with Ahoy. The coxswain would respond I, I if he had on board an officer below the rank of captain. If the admiral was in the boat, then the response would be Flag. Probably, sir. But that's an aside, almost. So, origin of I, I, probably Saxon, meaning understood. And this week's question, an easy one. John Dickey thinks he knows the answer, but in fact, he doesn't. (laughs) Who wears officer's uniform, but never with badges or lacing of rank? Answers to SIPREP at bfbs forward slash SIPREP. Now let's think about the subcontinent ie that subcontinent which includes sri lanka india and pakistan and let's start with pakistan um, pakistan pakistan government seems bent on destroying the grip of taliban in the swat
3: valley 1500 troops put in helicopters tanks why now why not before well they now realize as, soon as it was when uh, the insurgents reached within 67 miles of islamabad the capital and when uh, Surveys of the extent of the government control over the northern West provinces was said to be by a, a Nodu survey by the BBC to be only 38 percent. So they realised that unless it all these provinces down there, including the Swat, um, SWAT yes. Peshawar, uh, yes. etc., and unless they took very drastic action, uh, the country would uh, be out of control. <laughs> The, there is
0: something else here, isn't there? And that is the, it's a slow sort of realisation that um, Pakistan really matters to what's going on in Afghanistan. And it seems to have taken ages, say, Washington and London, to figure this out.
2: And the relevant experts did know it before and were saying it before. It's a bit like Iraq. Uh, there, there were those who could tell them what would happen. Um, but they weren 't listening, I suspect Why in this well, I think it 's an important that, point isn 't it? it is, and I think it in this case it 's because it 's too awful to contemplate because of Pakistan having the bomb and the uh, when Pakistan followed India with developing a nuclear bomb capability it was. The cat had got out of the bag. It was the end of containment through the non-proliferation treaty. And yet, because nobody could think of any alternative, we went on thinking for 20 years that maybe we could get that cat back in the bag or we could stop it at Pakistan and India. And uh, the, But the point then was, well, let's make them part of our club, even though they've got these bombs uh, so that the second danger doesn't happen. Now, that's all been completely overtaken by the consequences of fighting the Soviets through the Mujahideen in the 1980s. Then what happened? Well, they're fighting the Soviet... Through the local Mujahideen and inviting and encouraging Arab volunteers from across North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, uh, Yemen, Egypt, a, a very fine trade backed officially by the Saudi government and some other governments, a trade, literally getting money to get volunteers to Afghanistan to fight the communists uh, alongside the locals. And then as soon as (laughs) the Soviets withdrew, gave up on that war, then walk away and not take any notice of the consequences. And the consequences included... um, an outflow of refugees from Afghanistan into Pakistan where the Saudis were amongst others paying for the setting up of schools that concentrated on religious studies. You had the makings of uh, recruits for Taliban and Al-Qaeda.
0: Julian, I can remember 15 years ago, people in the MOD at staff colleges saying to me, Afghanistan, when we got to talk about it, we don't want to go there.
1: Absolutely. was one of the things, the principles, you never went to Afghanistan. Uh, Not since 1838. Uh, yeah, because you learnt your lesson bitterly. But I entirely go along with what Rosemary said, that this has got a long, long fuse, this whole problem. And it absolutely does date back to uh, trying to fight the Russians uh, through the Mujahideen. And if we'd, uh, if we'd had a, a crystal ball, I think I would have said, let them stay there, mm. uh, because we've really created a problem far worse mm. than the
0: original problem. Any... Body, well, any ideas of this counter-Taliban operation by the Pakistanis doesn't work? What happens then? Was that too terrible to contemplate, Rosemary?
2: Well, it is, and I was giving it a go in anticipation yeah. that it would come up in this programme. And I think it could descend to the point where you've got internal warfare in Pakistan between various forces, the preference of... NATO members, the Western Alliance, would be for the anti-Taliban, anti-Al-Qaeda forces to triumph. But the, in, up to a certain point, they are powerless to ensure that that happens.
1: Right. I and mean, I find it ironical. We've given them 87 million pounds, a lot of which, according to Gordon Brown in the news Just today... this week. Yeah, is going to be to counter the bad influence of the madrasas. And yet at the same time, the Saudi who are supposedly our allies in the part of the world, are pumping even more money to make certain the madrasas stay going. I mean, it's absolutely bananas.
0: What does the Foreign Office say, John? They must understand this. They're all old India hands, the ones that aren't camels.
3: They don't want to get involved directly, but they would pass the buck, I think, to the United States. I think they would accept that if Bush came to shove, if the government in Islamabad was, was collapsing, there would have to be an invitation to the United States to get in and... Uh, hold the line.
1: But there's another card, which is India. Are they going to see um, a, a, a government in Pakistan which might be totally inimical to them, which might pose a threat, or mm. or a government which, because it's so chaotic, operations are being mounted in, uh, to, into India, as have been already, um, from Pakistan. What Are they going to sit by and twiddle their thumbs forever and ever? I mean, that that's another... Very dangerous situation, isn't right. it, that they yes. might react?
3: No, I think they probably let, let the Pakistanis chew in their own juice. I think the Indians would be quite uh, content just to hold fires.
2: And there's another little danger looming in the background that uh, I don't know whether it's come up in this programme before, but, but what about all the Pakistanis, if it implodes, who will seek sanctuary in the UK?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Let's, um, let's explore more about India, because the four-week election process is drawing to a close. What will the outcome do for the region? Remembering that the American State Department and the Foreign Office and, of course, Islamabad are saying if terrorism isn't beaten in Pakistan, then the whole region will be threatened with chaos. Well, on the line, Walter Anderson from the Johns Hopkins University School of International Studies in Washington, D.C. Is that threat uh, of spreading terrorism felt keenly in India, do you think?
4: Oh, yes. Um, I once saw that reaction after Mumbai. and Mumbai was... Uh one of several that year of terrorist attacks. It's regional in scope. Um, The Indians have tended to emphasize the regional aspects of it, in part because of the communal issue inside India itself and the looming elections that were coming up. But the prime minister had to recognize that, in fact, there is a domestic component to it as well. And the problem is that domestic component and and regional allies are cooperating Uh, more than they have in the past. That's also true uh, within Pakistan as well, among the various groups.
0: The voting in India, I mean, it's taken so long because it's it's, it's an awesome task, isn't it? I mean, to provide a vote for 700 million people, very impressive the way it's been done.
4: Right, and all the voting machines as well, electronic voting machines, sometimes they had to sort of transport the generators by elephant Mm -hmm. into remote areas, but it seems to have worked. There have been relatively few complaints. Uh, that i 've seen uh, on the elections yes it 's an enormous task, uh, but I think the interesting thing about the elections is that the voter turnout this year was uh, lower than in previous years.
0: when was that two thousand and
4: four yes, it was lower
0: yeah um, more than half in 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 Delhi, uh, but uh, much less than half in Mumbai
4: yes, in fact, in uh, south Mumbai where the uh, the attacks the, the focus of the attacks last November occurred was only forty two percent
0: what about West Bengal because that 's quite important now, and is there is what three quarters of turnout?
4: Um, yes, uh, but that has historically been the case that uh, in West Bengal the numbers have turned out in relatively high numbers and at least if uh, some early predictions are true, uh, the communists uh, uh, should uh, uh, will, uh, will lose quite a few seats there and in Kerala, the other big state where they had uh, support, which means they're likely to play less of a role in whatever coalition government emerges than they did the last time in 2004.
0: How do these voting figures, if they do, uh, tell us something about what India wants from a future government?
4: Well, it's it's interesting because there were no real national issues. Not even terrorism was a national issue in these elections. And I think what that tells you is that the Indians increasingly are inward-looking. Regional parties have been picking up support, and 2004 was the first time the regional parties actually got more popular votes than the two national parties, which is the Congress and the Bharatiya Janata Party. My guess is that percentage has increased still further. So they are going to play a more significant role in coalition formation, uh, and I think the consequences are going to be increased decentralization, perhaps somewhat less of a focus on foreign policy. Um, and uh, I think you're going to see a, a trends of that kind, which have actually been around for a while, continuing.
0: Walter Anderson, thank you very much indeed. Um, Don Dickey, um, Tamil Nadu, the election there was probably the one area that was concentrating on what was happening to the Tamils in in Sri Lanka. Um, the United Nations saying northeast corner of Sri Lanka as the army tried
3: to finish off the Tamil Tigers amounts to a bloodbath of civilians. And yet the United Nations has proved itself powerless because you have the the vetoes in the um, permanent members of the Security Council, both Russia and China, regard this as an internal affair, nothing to do with the outside world.
0: Mm. Um, Rosemary, why is uh, the United Nations so useless? Because it's the sum of its parts?
2: I think so. I think that's the main reason. Mm. And also because the members are not prepared to put enough money and effort and high caliber forces into all the contingencies <coughs> that are required it's uh, we're just not pooling our resources um and making them um effective
0: julian i mean let's be cynical for just for a second it doesn't matter does it to most people in the united nations that a lot of guys are getting children women are getting wasted in northeast uh, sri lanka when it's done governments in charge thank goodness for that get on with the cricket. Yes, I mean, that's the cynical view. Uh, I mean, it's an appalling view. The
1: whole idea of the United Nations set up after the, the, the Second World War, this would be a, a, an organisation that prevented these sort of things from happening. Uh, you could say that it was idealistic. Uh, and I suppose the only time that it will work is if something happens or in this world, which is so horrifying and so universal, people say, for God's sake, the United, United Nations
0: sort it out and will support you while you sort it out. Yeah. Can we shift round to Afghanistan, which we've talked about earlier, but uh, I just wanted to ask you about, um, um, Gillian, about uh, General uh, Stanley McChrystal. I mean, he is a Petraeus man, and he's been in Iraq, etc. Et he is the guy that's actually taking over from David McKinnon. Why was David McKinnon actually sacked? I suppose because he didn't come up with the goods, really. Um, it was but when he went to... there, he was... What were the goods? I mean, he was the guy yeah. chosen for the goods at the time. That's
1: right. I mean, he's up against a hugely difficult problem. We've discussed it before around this table, mm. where you're dealing with multi layers of national people, all with their own agendas, no one plan, uh, and you've got sort of two or three headquarters all trying to do the same thing. I, I think he just found it. Uh, it didn't
0: work. Yeah, John, um, I saw Paddy Ashdown the other day and he said, oh, well, he said that was a statement of the bleeding obvious, wasn't it, as we would have said, um, that it wasn't going to work in the first place. Now, again, we're back to the thing as Rosie was talking about. People do know this. How come nobody listens? What about your foreign office? Why don't they say to Gordon? Come on, Squire. You've got it wrong. We've
3: well, got to be doing this. They keep on looking at the problem from different angles. And the fact you've got a, a new general doesn't necessarily mean you've got a new solution. What worries me about McChrystal is, well, two things worry me. One is that he likes to get conference calls going at 6 in the morning. And secondly, as a man of, what, middle 40s, early 50s, he insists on running to his office every morning. The last time I saw somebody uh, running to an office was the director of the uh, Heart Foundation in Miami, and he was found dead in his tracksuit uh, at five thirty
0: in the had morning.
2: he eats once a day as well, apparently, because yes. he yeah. wants to keep alive.
0: This is a different regime, isn't it? A different regime. Talking of different regimes, um, Rosie, can we talk about um, the Middle East? On Monday, um, the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Netanyahu, goes to Washington. Everybody. It's like waiting for Godot. The statement on, Palestine never comes, does it? Uh, is he going to come when he talks to uh, the president on Monday? And what well, there's one be
2: theory that the quid pro quo, the um, trade-off for getting his meeting finally with the president, is that he will utter the words about a two-state solution. Because Obama didn't want to see him yet, did he? Uh, and uh, Obama's playing hard to get because he hasn't. Uh, but this is a classic case of raising the bar so that there's more to negotiate about, which is absolutely irrelevant to whether the situation on the ground is improved.
0: Mm. John, um, a- a- again, we come back to this this thing. Everybody talks about, oh, you've got to have two states. I mean, the, uh, His Holiness this week was talking
3: about the Palestinians having their own state. Why should the Palestinians have their their own state? Because it's their homeland. I mean, they were thrown out of a place by uh, the decision in <laughs> in British Parliament to give a homeland for Jews in Palestine, not to make Palestine a homeland for the Jews and um, it's obvious that the, the is not going to shift. Uh, You're going in, to get
2: a lot of emails in the last meeting. as a result of that last statement. Go on uh, then. Yes. Well, uh, besides which, I mean, you, you may be right, the British Parliament, but I understood it was the Balfour Declaration. It was Balfour, but it was, it, was Balfour. it was Lord Balfour. It was Lord
3: Balfour, but it was sanctioned 16, by the British Parliament. He could not do it on his own. It had to be sanctioned by the British
2: Parliament. Uh, but it only became a legal document when it was incorporated into the League of Nations yeah. mandate okay. that the British were well, required
1: then, and, to and, implement. And the one thing that's not... That I'm picking up on what John Concept, and I entirely go along with it. Uh, the, the bit that's forgotten is the bit at the end, which says it provided it does not impinge upon mm. the wealth, health, mm. happiness of the indigenous population. Well, everybody's actually.
0: wealth, health <coughs> and happiness has been impinged upon. Mm. I still can't quite see why you have to have two states there. Why can't you have it's, one state? Or is that
3: idyllic?
6: Well, you've well, got of a Jewish it-
3: state. I mean, Israel insists it's a Jewish state. Uh, it's not just a state as such of any religion. It's a state for the Jews. And therefore, that's going to be stuck to by uh, Avigdor Lieberman, who, when he saw uh, David Miliband yesterday... The Foreign Secretary. Uh, our foreign Secretary was, was not prepared to give an inch, and he certainly will not do anything to reduce the number of settlements. So I think uh, until you have a separate state, there's no future for the Palestinians. It's about the
2: right of self-determination. If the Israelis gave the Palestinians equal citizenship... Uh, then a lot of Palestinians would much prefer that. But they need to have the
3: right of return as well. They don't get that in a Jewish state.
2: If if it was um, two nationalities sharing the state, Mm. but this business of it being predominantly Jewish, let's remember there is a Palestinian minority in the state of Israel as things stand. We are here in a contest over self-determination for everybody, equal rights for everybody, representation for everybody, sovereignty for everybody, and there is no solution that will accommodate all Palestinian refugees and uh, resolve the question of Jerusalem and give the Palestinians a viable state. There is no ideal solution. So the two-state formula is considered the best of a bad job.
0: Right. So, I mean, make a cup of tea... While he's in, while Netanyahu's in uh, Washington, because whatever comes out there ain't going to mean a thing, is it?
2: it? It so far, negotiating about the terms of talks, let alone resolution of the conflict, has taken up years, and it's unclear that there's enough oomph and determination and commitment on either the Palestinian or the Israeli side. The Palestinians are divided over whether they want this mini-state. Um, or they want to remain true to the cause, inclusive of refugee rights.
3: Right. But also, the Israelis are more concerned about Iran's threat uh, to the region and coming to terms. They will not do anything about the Golan Heights of Syria. Okay. Quickly, let's
0: talk about Iran then. Um, who's going to win the election?
2: You've got two moderate candidates, uh, and so Mo- they're out. Uh, mm-hmm. Not necessarily. And Moussavi, who's um, front runner. Of the contenders against the incumbent president who 's running again, ahmadinejad wasn 't he prime
0: minister Mo he
2: was, mm. and uh, unusually he 's got his wife campaigning beside him, um, and she is actually somewhat better known in recent years than he she leading academic vice chancellor of a university all women university in Tehran. Um, and quite a puller of the crowds. The problem for this candidate is that the vote of the moderates might be split between Mousavi and Karoubi, the ex-speaker, who is also seen as relatively moderate. And then just in case you don't like Ahmadinejad and the, the message made of the Who is blamed economy, for
0: everything, isn't he? I mean, by everybody. No, but I also think... There's
3: a great r- rising criticism about the nepotism of uh, Ahmadinejad. He's got his brother-in-law who is uh, running the cabinet secretary job. He's got his elder brother running the presidency's chief inspector. He's got his... His sister running the, the women's uh, charity organisation. He's another brother-in-law in charge of the social security organisation. So despite the fact that recent polls give him a 56% yeah. chance of, of pulling it off, I think there's growing distrust of all the nepotism and also the fact of the economy going down. And he's not, uh, he's not claiming any expenses through the Westminster Fees Office. He doesn't need it. to. He's got all his relatives yeah. in charge. Let's it
0: move is, to it that. Is,
2: it is an exciting election and there will be choice 12th of
0: well. June. 12th of June. We'll be there. We'll be there. Um, talking about the Fees Office, you'll heard about British MPs. Of all parties, all parties, uh, without breaking the law nor the parliamentary rules, they've been creaming thousands of pounds of expenses and fiddling property schemes. Fiddling is the word, not mine. A game within the law. So who are these 600-odd money-scamming honourable ladies and gentlemen to tell African politicians, John, that they're corrupt for mm-hmm. pocketing admittedly
3: large sums? But then who's counting? I think that's one of the basic points of this gentle affair. I was talking to a Greek friend yesterday who said that he used to be able to turn to the people in Athens who were knee-deep in corruption by saying this would never happen in Britain. He said, no, I can't say that, because uh, it happens in all levels of the parties, the cabinet ministers, ordinary backbenchers, uh, destroying a reputation of Parliament which has
2: been built up over the years. Does it matter, Rosie? Well, I'm sad that this matters more than the erosion of the... Civil liberties of the British public, consecutively over consecutive years, um, you know, graft and all the rest of it. It was the same thing that was that was designed to fuel the the growth in the British economy through the financial sector. I mean, this this perception that that material well-being is what people strive for. So it shouldn't, it's to be expected. It's been the ethos of the last 10 years.
3: But you don't, into, you don't go into Parliament for, for material but benefits and But I think, I think one theory. of the, big, the biggest
1: uh, hurts or dangers is that people will get totally fed up with democracy, which they shouldn't do, and will say, well, why should we vote for these dreadful people? And less and less people will turn out, which is appalling, uh, and you get people sort of quoting cromwell and say you sat here long enough be gone uh, so you know there's almost a sort of wish a death wish Gosh. on democracy
3: yeah. yes no i think um, probably you'll, you'll get a bigger turn out of the elections of people wanting to say no to these mp's who have abused their position by getting
0: yeah, but put for... in their place john can <coughs> i come ba- just come back to this because um, it, it's it, it is really um we get the politicians we deserve so i'm uh, am i being too sort of
3: philosophical when I say, well, that tells us so much about our society now. I think it, it, it spreads throughout the society and not just through Parliament. That People are, are out to bend the rules whenever they can, get benefits whenever they can, but, I mean...
5: It's not just talk, the MPs, is it?
3: No, but the MPs should, it, should it, be, it can uh, be. Uh, uh, if possible, role models for the rest of society. That's what they're there in politics for, but uh, they, they've lost the plot.
0: Yeah, Talk about losing the plot, I don't know if you've come across this, Julian, and that is the um, what are we doing about the Iraqi interpreters who are getting quite a campaign going, almost as big as the, the Gurkha campaign, and saying why can't we come and live here because we feel threatened?
1: Well, I, I feel for them. They've put their lives on the line, and there's every chance that when we disappear, or having disappeared, that they'll be in even more danger. And I think we have a moral duty to make certain that they're going to be okay.
2: Perhaps we can get Joanna Lumley on the case. Well, it's a
3: bit like that because then the rules were, were so uh, rigid. In fact, with the interpreters, there had to be 12 consecutive months. Well, there were times when... How do you, how do you work that out? Intimidation, they, they couldn't do the job for a period of time, maybe two or three days. And, and because they haven't got that consecutive service, they're not entitled to residence here. Yeah. Um, tell me something,
0: again, because we're into any other business now. we got, what, five minutes to go. Aung uh, San Suu Kyi. On Monday, she goes for trial. Uh, John, explain the background
3: to this lady for the last 19 years. Uh, well, the she's been under house the... arrest, unable to speak to anybody, and then suddenly an intrepid American, uh, age 53, decided that he would beat the system. Uh, she's surrounded... Is he from the New York Times or something? He wants an interview. Yes, well, he swam across the lake uh, in dead of night, uh, eluding the security guards who normally patrol around the edge of the lake and in front of the house, carrying his clothes in a a rucksack, waterproof protected on his back, and had two days with the lady. She wanted him to go away at once and he refused. He wanted to enjoy the the great success of his uh, intrepid adventure and when he was caught on the way back and he's under arrest, subsequently she has been blamed for breaching the terms of her uh, house arrest and is, is going on trouble. Why is this important, Rosie? Because it is important, isn't
0: it? It is, it is what, again, what we have failed to do when we say that Osang Suu is important to everybody, she is the light of democracy, and yet we fail to do anything about it to help her.
2: Well, what can you do to help her? Exactly.
0: Exactly that. And that's why we're back to the whole sort of thing about the Tamils, for example. What can you do, and should you be making all these big noises, or should you keep quiet, and should you try and do it in another way?
2: And no, it's 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 an age-old problem, and and, and it's where we started the this program. Mm. If in an era when you actually got admired for ruling other people, other cultures, other nations, um, and telling everybody what was good for them and how to do it, that was one thing. But now you depend on a certain level of cooperation because you it, it's realized that... Um, in time, empires collapse. You cannot spend all your time telling everybody what to do. So you'll have a revolt at that point. And if you're going to get the the Burmese regime to cooperate, how?
0: So we, we are living, John, then, in a society that has no international law that anybody has to obey. And yet... In the
3: 1940s, we thought the United Nations was that, as Julian was saying earlier. Well, one hoped one could get consensus on what was right and what was wrong, but the facts of life are that people can't agree on that, and the Burmese Myanmar military regime just ignores the, the rest of the world. It can have the UN Secretary General um, inveighing against their behavior, but that, that doesn't... And what if the Russians them. are right
0: then? What if the Russians are right and they say, right, those people there, they got oil, and we, d- we want it, and it's our oil? We're not going to be able to leave it to the United Nations to figure out. They can't figure it out. Well,
2: well I, I don't want to leave the impression that I, I think making a fuss is is no good at all. No. So let's not bother and let's get these let these people get away with it. I think we've um, civil society everywhere has got to have some sort of solidarity and hold all leaders to account for what they're doing, whether they've been elected by the locals or not. And let's make maximize the benefits of globalization. People power, we That's know... That's fine in theory, it.
3: but look at the, the condemnation of what's going on in Zimbabwe with Robert Mugabe. Uh, the Afghans are members of civil society, but they will not take action against them. He could have been stopped if the South Africans had... Cut off his electricity and his oil. It's um, all very well to talk about civil society, but unless you've got people agreed on the, the guidelines, you'll never get any action.
2: OK, but I'm just saying let's not give up because we can't no. solve all the problems. So and,
1: the and, of course, there's a, there's,
3: a, there's a pressure
1: point, too. in, in The Burmese generals or Myanmar generals couldn't care less because they didn't, don't care what happens to their people. There's no sanction that you can apply to them.
0: OK, we've got the uh, Somali pirates couldn't care less. We've got the Sri Lankan generals who couldn't care less. We've got Taliban who couldn't care less. Uh, we've got... Uh, Robert Be- Mugabe. Robert Can't Mugabe, Mugabe nice. couldn't
3: care less. So where do we go from here? We've just got to persevere. I think we've got to make as, as much as we can of our pressures. We've got all sorts of economic pressures. But we
0: just fought two wars on the basis that we believe we were doing the right thing, mm-hmm. whether or not the United Nations could hack it or not.
2: Yeah. Okay.
3: I think we choose our battles. Mm. We choose our battles. And tell us... Uh, I mean, we choose not get the for going to battle sometimes if we chose the reason for going to, into a right. Yes. <laughs> OK,
0: <laughs> that is it for this week. Sit Reps Roundtable. table. Uh, don't forget the quiz, will you? I mean, who wears officer's uniform but never with badges or lacings of rank? It's easy peasy. Yes, I mean, it's very about, easy. Shut up, John. You don't know the answer anyway. Answers on email to sitrep at com forward slash... Sit rep, isn't it? Thank you, Julian Thompson, John Dickey, and Rosemary Hollies. And, of course, don't forget for Mary in the Hut. We'll be back next week, same time, and actually to the same place. Bye now.